first text we'll be looking at is 2 Peter 1, so you can be turning there as I'm talking. But uh, just to remind you of where we've been, we began this whole series trying to give a foundation for our ecclesiology, our doctrine of the church, and not just for the sake of it, not just to give you some check marks marked off in your systematic theology checklist, but we're getting to how we look at the responsibilities of us as the leadership of the church, and perhaps more helpfully for you, the responsibilities of you as members of this church, as those who are united to one another here in this local body, and what the Bible expects of us in living together and loving one another. So, at this present juncture, Pastor Caleb a few weeks ago was going over foundationally our belief in the authority of Scripture and our belief in the sufficiency and clarity of Scripture and how the Bible alone is our infallible rule for how we live. And this is what we're seeing in 2 Peter 1, 3. Um, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Last week we looked at applying this to the doctrine of Christian liberty, as it's often called. And understanding that one of the beautiful things is how we talk about how when we're saved we use a lot of legal language. Um, My sins are forgiven. My status as a guilty criminal before God is changed. We also talk about healing language, how the sickness of sin in me has been purged and obliterated, and I'm born again, new heart. But there's also a lot of language about freedom and chains and how when we're saved, our bondage to sin is broken. Now, we still sin, but I'm not enslaved by my sin anymore. When sin beckons and says, give me your eyes that you may look at these sinful things, you do not have to say yes. Whereas in Christ, or outside of Christ, you have no power but to say, yes, Master, here are my eyes. And when the flesh beckons you to use your hands to sin, outside of Christ, you have no choice but to say, yes, Master, here are my hands. Because sin is your master. But in Christ, our chains are broken to sin, and we are set free to love Christ and to serve one another according to our God-given consciences. And where this really gets to the issue of liberty is that I do not have the liberty to call sin what the Bible does not call sin in our interpersonal relationships, and I do not have the liberty to neglect to call things sin that the Bible does call sin. So, that's all review. Coming today, we're applying the authority, sufficiency, and clarity of Scripture to another aspect of our life together. And that's what happens when we actually gather. And this is what is historically called the regulative principle of worship. Looking at 2 Peter 1, 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. And one of the foundational premises is the idea that if this is true, we should expect that we are given direction about what to do when we gather as God's people. 
like if this is true outside of that, I don't know how we how we I don't know how we understand the Bible to give us all things pertaining to life and godliness without telling us what to do when we gather as God's people. If that makes sense. So, to define the regulative principle of worship. I think it's helpful with our confession. And if you don't have it in front of you, you can just listen. (laughs) Uh, Chapter 22, paragraph 1, explains what we're talking about. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. Now, here's the per- really pertinent part. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself, and so limited by His own revealed will, that He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So the key points here are that uh, the acceptable way of worshiping God is instituted by Himself. God tells us what He wants. God tells us what He likes. And we're not at liberty to say, well, that's nice, but I know what God really likes and I'm going to offer Him this. God tells us what is acceptable to Him. True worship is so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. To re, just to restate it and try to be clear, because I understand this is more controversial than last week's lesson, which is why I've been pretty vexed in trying to put it together, Just to be as clear as we can, when God's people have gathered in a local assembly to worship the Lord, the only acceptable worship to God is that which the Lord Himself has prescribed in His Word, either by His explicit commands or by good and necessary consequence from what is in His Word. Is there any... Does that make sense as far as just the definition that we're talking about? Okay. Um... Just a comment. This may strike some of you as kind of funny following last week's lesson. Because we're talking about Christian liberty. And now we're talking about the regulative principle. And it's interesting because the confession does this. If you remember last week, when we were looking at Christian liberty, that was chapter 21. And now, looking at the regulative principle of worship, we're in chapter 22. The confession doesn't shy from the connection between these two. But as we go, I hope to show you The regulative principle should not be seen as a burden, but should actually be seen as a guard and a blessing for you. And just to say that right away, it's because you are protected from the devices of men. You're protected from the suggestions of Satan infiltrating what we do here. So we'll talk more about that as time goes on. First thing I want to do is establish that this is the case in the Old Testament. Like, verbatim. (laughs) The regular principle is how the Old Testament people worshipped explicitly. So, turn to Genesis 4. 
We'll begin in Genesis 4. It's one of the first instances of collective, well, probably is the first instance of collective worship that we see in Scripture. Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the offering of brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offspring. But for Cain and his offspring, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Here at the very beginning of human history, before there are stone tablets, before there is an Old Testament law, it is obvious that there are some, some worship is accepted by God and some is not. And if we want to just state the bare minimum of what we see here, we see that. Not everything that is done by men and is called worship is acceptable. Now you can talk about why some was not acceptable. I think it's pretty clear that there's an animal sacrifice theme you can see even prior in Genesis 3 because the covering, they co- tried to cover themselves with leaves, wasn't a proper covering, something had to die to provide a covering for them. You see in, when Noah gets off the ark, there are animal sacrifices even there, again, before stone tablets, before the law. I think it's pretty clear from the very beginning there's a theme of blood sacrifice needed to be made right with God. But nonetheless, you have foundationally Not everything we do and call it worship is acceptable to God. We can do some things and call it worship, and God will not accept it. Okay. When you go to the Ten Commandments, you see in the first table, Commandments 1 through 4, those commandments directly relate to how man relates to God. And God is especially concerned with the mode and the time of worship. You see... In Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then the fourth commandment. Verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You can see that God is restricting what we might do and call it worship. Um, Leviticus 10 is one of probably the most important texts for talking about this idea. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Now, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, 
each took a censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Why were Nadab and Abihu struck down? Yeah, they offered strange fire. They offered unauthorized fire. Strange meaning the same thing as unauthorized. You can see the same use of the language in Jude when, uh, uh, is it the Sodom and Gomorrah, they went after strange flesh. The idea is it's unauthorized, it's not normal. So it's the same usage of the word here. That by offering strange fire, they're offering something other than what God commanded. And for that, they are struck dead right then and there. Deuteronomy 12 is a pretty interesting chapter. Let's look at Deuteronomy 12. Because if you want to talk about Old Testament, regular principle of worship, this is where it's like spelled out verbatim. <laughs> like there's, there's no reading in between lines or anything. It's just there. Um, Deuteronomy 12. Uh, let's start in verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in their own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest, uh, to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you will live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, and the Levite that is within your town since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. You can jump down to verse 28. Um, Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. And then... Even more plainly, the last verse, 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. So you see that. This is the, this is the regular principle. Do everything that I have commanded you. Do not add to it. Do not take away from it. So, just to pause here. Are there any questions so far about the Old Testament worship and the regulations that were on it? Because... I want to make sure that's clear. Yeah. What do we do with the instances where we have David dancing or we have Miriam uh, playing the tambourine in what appears to be worship? It, it wouldn't be violating what you have here. Like, like, this is talking about the location of the sacrifices, the, how the sacrifices are offered, what's to be sacrificed, all those things. Yeah, and... Also, with the examples you decide with Miriam, like this is talking about when you enter the land. There's a difference between before the land and after the land, after you get into the land. So, with like David, though, like dancing before the Lord, mm-hmm. that 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and when we're talking about regular principle, mm -hmm. is, is the gathering people of God. Right. Purposefully gathered together for the purpose of worship, not about personal worship. Mm -hmm. And so when we read of David personally worshiping before the Lord, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not exactly worship. Now, it would be a little different if he was trying to do a sin offering on his own. But as far as like, I just decide I want to praise the Lord by dancing and singing on my own. That's not what we're covering here. So, if you want to go over this kind of stuff, like you can go all through the Old Testament. It talks about how important the purity of the worship of God's people is. And we could spend all day doing that. I do want to just pass through 1 Samuel 15, because I think the language is interesting. So 1 Samuel 15, Saul is charged to wipe out the Amalekites, everything that breathes. And Saul doesn't do it. And Saul thinks that, whether he thinks he knows better, or whether he's just trying to smooth things over with God whom he just disobeyed, he decides, I can just offer all this stuff in sacrifice, and it'll be okay. Either I can buy off God with all these multitudinous sacrifices, or whatever. But look especially at verses 22 and 23. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And then, of course, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And you see, again, one of the fundamental principles that we're trying to look at. The Lord expects to be obeyed. And obedience is better than whatever we might call worship. Whatever might sound good to us to do, it's better to obey. And again, like Caleb is saying, the emphasis is on the gathered community. Yes. 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 One of one of the fun I think the New Testament will bear this out is that there is a difference. All of life is worship. And we certainly don't want to do anything that uh, anything contrary to what God commands outside of the local church. But there is a difference between what you're doing in the week and what you do here. Fundamental difference. So we're gonna to come to that now. <laughs> Let's go to the New Testament. And I want to start in 1 Timothy 3. First Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things, writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And with these verses, I can ask right away, um, what is implied 
in that he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you know how to behave in the household of God. Well, proper worship, um, but what's implied is we have to be told. We don't naturally know how to behave in the household of God. Peter, or Paul wouldn't write this if we just intuitively knew how to behave in the household of God. We need to be told. Yes, but I think I want to tease out a bit more to show why. So, how is the church described here? I see a threefold description. What is that threefold description? Yeah, house of God, primarily. What's another description? Church of the living God, assembly of the living God. What's the last one? Pillar and buttress of truth. So, when we think of the house of God, um, there's a lot we can talk about. Um, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And I want to just show these connective thoughts that are coming here. You have the household of God, you have the temple, you have the dwelling place of God. All of these places kind of being woven together in this text. Um... Remember that Jesus himself refers to the temple as the house of God multiple times. In Matthew 12, 3 through 4, he said to him, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? So again, I'm just showing you these connective ideas. Matthew 21, 13, he said to him, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The temple is the house of God. And when you look at those connective ideas, the tabernacle, the temple, and the New Testament assembly are all called the house of God. And when you think about the Old Testament houses of God, there were fundamentally different ways of behaving at those places than everywhere else. And so we got kind of a foundational idea that it should continue in a similar way. Not necessarily in the rules themselves, but in the premise that something's different here. Um, when you look at the church as the assembly of the living God, what's helpful here is that it's the assembly. It's not the building. This building is not holy. If the government took it tomorrow and made it a strip club and we had to move into um, someone's house to worship, it wouldn't be a huge difference to us. Because the holy place where God dwells is with us, the gathered people. It's not through the threshold of these doors and within these four walls. That was the case in the Old Testament. God did dwell specifically in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. He did dwell specifically in a special way in the Holy of Holies in the temple. But now, 
That's in the gathering, gathering of His people. And when you see the pillar and buttress of truth in 1 Timothy 3, it is where truth is to be found among the people of God. So, taking these ideas, and especially the house of God, I want to go to another text that I think is very helpful. Matthew 18. When you have the text on church discipline, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And like we've said before, this has to be the local church. There's no way to tell the universal church. There's no way to gather the entire universal church and tell it to the church. We have to tell the local church. Um, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And I was struck in listening to this exegeted this week. It might strike you as funny. The immediate application of the last verse is not any gathering of any Christians for any reason. <laughs> now, Christ is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But what we're talking about here is the local church gathering. If I have lunch with other Christians from another church, we don't have the keys of the kingdom. I don't have the authority to bind and loose and expect it to be bound and loosed in heaven. That only happens in the local assembly. That's the only place where that power is given. Again, if I meet with even some people from this church and we just have a meeting over lunch, we don't have the authority to excommunicate people. <laughs> that, we can't do that. You have to meet as the local assembly to have that power. Yeah. Well, I was just gonna, it was helpful to me to see that in this passage when I realized when the two come to confront the third yes. passage, yeah. apparently they're not the church. Right. There's a reference there. So there's a yes. gathering there, which is different than the church. That's true. That's very true. And that was helpful for me to realize that the two or three gathering is a specific two or three gathering. Yes. Which means when Jesus says, There I am among them, there is a special presence of God that is, among the gathered saints. Now, this is true in the Old Testament, too. God was specially present in the tabernacle, but that, did that mean He wasn't outside the tabernacle? No. God was still omnipresent. God was specially present in the temple, but yeah, He still was omnipresent. Same thing with us. He's still omnipresent. If I pray out in the middle of nowhere, God's there. He hears me. But there is a special way that God is present with His people in the Lord's Day gathering. And especially pertinent to what we're talking about, that means we behave differently because we're in the presence of God in a different way than we are through the rest of the week. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is interesting because it seems to be Paul's exegesis of Matthew 18. 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, this is a special assembly, right? When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. This isn't two of you getting together for lunch. This isn't three of you getting together for dinner. This is all of you meeting for your special Lord's Day meeting. When you assemble in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And another interesting text about Christ's presence with his church is Revelation. Um, Revelation 1 through, uh, it's Revelation 1, 12 through 13, and then 20. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And then those golden lampstands are defined at the end of Revelation 1. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Again, local churches, seven individual local churches, but the Lord is in the midst of them, present with them. So, to Caleb's point earlier, there is a sense in which all of life is sacred. There is a sense in which everything we do is worshiping God. But there is also a sense in which there is still a sharp sacred secular divide. There is a sense in which worship is to be done differently here. And why is that? I, I like the language you get from Genesis 28 with Jacob and the Jacob's ladder. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The idea that God is here, and that means something different is here. Uh, Sam Waldron was talking about the burning bush and Moses going to the burning bush and he was told, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy ground. One, why is it holy ground? Because God's there. (laughs) And two, Moses was allowed to wear whatever he wanted on his feet everywhere. But when you came into the presence of God, you have to behave differently and you have to behave as God tells you to behave. Uh, there's a few texts that if you're struggling with this Matthew 18 um, just the, the name aspect is interesting just to read some of these texts to you in Deuteronomy 12.5 but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes and put his name and make his habitation there name and habitation are likened together. In Deuteronomy 16, 1-2, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night, and you shall offer the Passover and sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make His name dwell there. 1 Kings 9, we were there recently on Wednesday nights. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. 
Nehemiah 1, 8 through 9, you're talking about after the temple. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, through, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place where, that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And so again, Matthew 18, when you see, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. His name and his presence together. Special worship where his name and presence are. And again, just to reiterate, this is not about a building. This is about the gathering of God's saints in obedience to his word to worship worship him how he has ordained. One more text for now. We'll see how far we get. Might not be one more text. Uh, 2 Corinthians, or no, it's Colossians, sorry. Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 20 through 23. And what I really want to emphasize here is the spirit of the regulative principle. Like, Today, we hear the regulative principle and we just feel like there is a burden put on us. We're put in this tight cage and I'm not allowed to do anything I want to do. But historically, the regulative principle was to free the consciences of God's people from having to obey all the wild ways of worship the Catholic Church had ordained and said, if you do not do this, you're not a Christian. And the regulative principle comes along and says, you need to show me in God's word where I have to do this. Colossians 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And when we're talking about Scripture regulating our worship, we're trying to avoid self-made worship. We're trying to avoid the, the ways that man might devise that might have an appearance of wisdom, but is indeed not helpful. And just to share how this might apply, we are, we don't, you might have noticed if you're with us for any length of time, we don't do religious holidays in the Lord's Day service. You're not going to see Christmas trees here. You're not going to see wreaths here. You're not going to see Easter Sunday stuff here. You're not going to see Ash Wednesday. <laughs> um, we're not doing any of that. Now, I have a Christmas tree, <laughs> and I put it up in my house. And on December 25th, we'll celebrate Christmas as a family. But we're not doing it here because Scripture hasn't commanded it. And so when you all come together, you're not going to have to worry if some of you are really convicted. I don't want to participate in this. You don't have to do that here. You're free. And we're not burdening you with that. We're not going to do skits here. And you're not going to have to worry about whether you're convicted. I don't know how I feel about someone trying to act as Christ and say things that aren't in the word of God. You don't have to worry about that. We're not going to burden you with that here. It's not commanded in Scripture. 
You know what? We're never going to baptize pets. We're not going to do feet washing during the regular service. We're not going to do communion with Cheez-Its and Mountain Dew. We're not going to raffle off prizes for visitors during the main service. We're not going to do altar calls. None of that's commanded. You can do all kinds of things, even with other believers, even in worship outside of this assembly. But when you come here, we're only doing what's commanded. And this should be a relief to you. Because you're not worried about whatever wild, crazy idea I have that I think will add to the worship experience. You don't have to worry about my creativity, and that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, well, that too. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Right? And if it's not commanded in God's word, we're binding your conscience to that. That's where it fits in with Christian liberty. Yes. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Um, it's liberating. Right. We're not going to bind your conscience to do something that the word of God does. The word of God does not command that confessionals be done in the way that the Roman Catholic Church does them. Therefore, you are not bound in your conscience to participate in them because we're not doing it. Maybe touch on it, especially with five minutes left. <laughs> but, yeah, and we'll probably, we'll probably keep going next week. Because I got several pages left. So. Yeah. So, family worship is not necessarily governed by the regular principles. No. No. Yeah. Because another thing we don't really do here is like, we want all music to be congregational singing. Because that's what we see is most faithful to what we see in God's Word. Now, you can do all kinds of stuff outside of the local assembly, and you can even do it in worship to God. But when it comes to here, we want to be limited at what we allow. And so in family worship... You have the liberty to do many things. <laughs> Obviously, nothing that's sinful, but yeah. This is, and you mentioned earlier that this is Sunday morning, so this wouldn't necessarily apply to like our cottage prayer meetings or our Wednesday nights. I don't. Are we still trying to regulate within the regular principle, even in those? I think it's most narrowly like when we gather to hear the preaching of the word, when we gather to take the Lord's Supper, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And we can gather in his name on other days, but yeah. on Lord's Day we definitely do that. But, right. right. But we, when we gather together in his name, mm-hmm. that's the, the, the basis. Right? right. Well, we'll probably end up keeping this going next week. So. Yeah, I, I mean, just, just talk to us, and we'll try to see where there might be questions and try to keep going next week. So let's pray.